0: Welcome to Generation Travel Radio, where we share the stories of people from a diverse range of generations and backgrounds whose lives have been enriched academically, professionally, and personally by international experiences. Hello and welcome to another episode of Generation Travel Radio. I'm your host, Kelly Davis, here with Aaron Morris today, and we're really excited to welcome Dr. Jeff Berlin, who's calling in from the North Shore of Oahu in Hawaii. I met Jeff just a few months ago, I think it was in October or so, that he was giving a presentation for the NAFSA Region 12 conference. And I was really fascinated with what he spoke to in terms of global citizenship And so we connected offline and got to talk more about it. So for a bit of context about Jeff, he's an organizational development consultant and he currently leads his own company, which is called Jeff Berlin Consulting. He's got a really interesting background, which consists of both academic and more professional experiences. He has a master's in industrial and organizational psychology and also a PhD in community and cultural psychology. For the last 15 years, Jeff has worked in the organizational development field for a variety of companies, including NASA here in California, Catalyst, UHM, and two of Hawaii's largest financial institutions. It's really great that Jeff brings his organizational psychology background uh, into education abroad. And that's kind of what we're here talking about today is his dissertation from his PhD at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Before we dig into that, Jeff, please take a minute or two to introduce yourself to our audience and share with us your personal mission.
1: All right. Thanks, Kelly and Aaron. I'm delighted and honored to be here. I I just appreciate the invitation to come speak with you guys. This is my first podcast ever. So it's quite exciting. I'm ready to have some fun today. So my introduction. So when I go through these introduction activities, I like to talk about kind of a, a cultural difference. There's this idea of doing versus being cultures. And uh, this is a theory from the 1960s. And in doing cultures, people tend to emphasize what someone has done, right? It's their their accomplishments, their accolades, those, those various things that you just uh, went through, Kelly. And then in the being cultures, it's more about who are you as a person? What is your character? What is your soul? And a classic example is if you're gonna, if you're looking to hire someone, let's say, the doing culture is really gonna look at the resume, right? They've done this, 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 they've won this award, this award, this award. Whereas the being culture is like, yeah, that's all good. And that's important as well, but who are you? Am I going to like working with you? Are you going to fit the team? Are you going to fit the culture? Those types of things. And so I appreciate you, Kelly, sharing the kind of doing aspect of my background. And so I want to share a little bit about the being aspect of my background. I'll, I'll tell you, quote unquote, my story. I was born and raised in a small beach town in New Jersey, a little town called Normandy Beach. It was a great balance of kind of a, a small beach town, uh, really salty, surfy, fisherman, you know, kind of crusty ocean vibe. Um, but we could also be in New York City in an hour and a half. So it was culturally speaking, it was really an interesting balance of those two worlds. So then I moved to North Carolina when I was 18 to go pursue my undergraduate at North Carolina Wilmington. There I lived in Wrightsville Beach, similar beach town once again, but the skies were a little bluer. (laughs) It was a little bit warmer for a longer period of time throughout the year. And my, my mom still lives there now with her longtime partner, Don. It was really interesting to experience the kind of Southern United States culture, right? Totally different from New Jersey, even though they're 10 hours apart very different spaces to live. When I graduated from UNCW, uh, major in psychology, I moved to the San Francisco area. I lived in San Jose for a little while, went to San Jose State University, and I lived in Half Moon Bay for the majority of my time there, and I love the Bay Area so much. Oh my gosh, there's so many wonderful aspects of it. I always say you can Drive for three hours in any direction and experience something new for the rest of your life, right? It's such a diverse place, both ecologically and culturally, uh, so much good music and cuisine. It was a really great experience, and I, I just love the Bay Area. It's very near and dear to my heart. I graduated and I moved to Hawaii in 2010. It's been a long time coming. I always kind of set my trajectories west, and uh, I am now happy and humbled to call Hawaii home. And interestingly, I met my wife current now wife, on the way to Hawaii, who is living in North Carolina, I went to go hang out with my mom for a little while. And we met, but I was on my way here. And uh, we just hit it off. And then she got accepted to the master's social work program out here a year later, moved out, and the rest is history. So as you mentioned, Kelly, we live on the North Shore. I am now doing my own consulting company. It's good, especially in this COVID environment. You know, we always say food, shelter, family and friends are safe and healthy. And so all is well, all things considered. So then this maybe brings me into the personal mission piece. Personally, you know, my goal is to enjoy this crazy small bit of time we have on this planet, seeing how big the universe is and how small we are and trying to continuously be humble and not take things too seriously, but still figure out where one can contribute and, you know, what what does our time mean here? And really just trying to make the most of it. And that translates into my I guess my that's my personal goal, but I guess my personal mission is helping others enjoy their time on this planet, right? And this really is the, the mission and the why of, of the business that I'm I'm running now. It's making people's work lives better, right? Making it so they like their jobs, facilitating critical discussions, whether that's in businesses, communities, class environments, these types of environments, conducting research that aid in community well-being, advancing social, cultural, environmental justice efforts. Fighting the good fight and supporting organizations that are fighting the good fight. And, you know, I, I always think about what does success mean? And one of my favorite quotes of success is Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's a, it's a long way. I could read it to you, but I won't. I'll just say one piece of it. The last little piece is to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That's being successful, right? So if you can positively influence just one other person's life, make them breathe a little easier. That's good. And then if you even just multiply that by more, all the better.
0: Thanks for sharing all of that context about you, Jeff, and really setting us up for how we can dive into these, you know, ideas of culture and how it impacts us as individuals. And also, you know, I think people are going to recognize a little bit of what we talk about reflected in what in that quote that you just gave.
2: I'm curious, Ben, transitioning into talk more about your dissertation and how, with this background you have in psychology and organizational development, how you ended up coming around to the idea and doing research about study abroad and specifically about global citizenship and global competency, knowing that your dissertation's title, I'll throw it in there, is Beyond Intercultural Competence, Global Citizenship and a Critical Study Abroad. So what yeah, do you think? Yeah. What made you go that way?
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Thanks, Aaron. I, I I love the question. And you know, just to kind of hit on on what you said there in the beginning too about um, having. And I always loved I loved your question. Uh, you know, listening to your your previous podcast about your personal mission and and that really speaks to someone's why, right? Like why do you get up in the morning? And I, you know, working with with students, leaders, just people in general, I always encourage them to really find that, right? Because it drives everything. It, it, it's if you're really crystal clear about it, you can find numerous applications. And that's just what you were saying, right? It's it, whether it's in study abroad or whether it's in, you know, internships or what, whatever it is, you start to navigate and find ways to manifest your personal mission, if you will, or your why. So now to your question about how did I get into study abroad? Or yeah, I mean, it's it's quite the circuitous route. And I don't know if I have a very clear answer to it. Psychology, just a few notes on that, is very simply the study of human behavior, right? That is what psychology does. And I think typically people understand psychology in a very narrow way in that it's clinical or counseling psychology. The classic thing is, oh, you're a psychologist, so you're analyzing me right now. And they're joking, but the answer is always yes. (laughs) You know, because we're constantly analyzing human behavior. We're not judging but we're analyzing. So, you know, there's actually many facets of psychology that aren't just those narrow clinical counseling. I mean, I learned and decided very early on that that's not what I wanted to do in psychology, but I found it so interesting and I really loved it. And I was good at it in terms of school and grades, probably because I was interested and passionate about it, right? There's certainly a correlation there. And so it took me a while to really figure out what did I want to do in the field of psychology? Through various experiences, as I was saying, I kind of came into three primary areas of psychology that really fascinated me. My first and biggest love is really culture. Right? And that's a lot of what we're talking about today. That's a lot about what you all do um, in your, your profession and through this podcast, right, is experiencing different cultures. Once again, psychology is the study of human behavior. And what I found is that when you throw the variable of culture into the mix, our understanding of human behavior changes. It has to change. And a lot of the fundamental theories and principles of psychology are based in Western thinking. Right? it's It's a predominantly um, industrialized, often Anglo perception of the world. And predicting and understanding human behavior based on those theories inherently misses a vast majority of the world's population. So I just found that so interesting because it kind of just threw a wrench in everything I had learned. And I always like that. I like different ways of thinking about things and seeing and seeing things. And so culture, you know that, Cultural psychology, cross-cultural psychology, that was really that that was it for me. But now it was trying right almost from an academic, intellectual, philosophical space. But now it's finding, okay, what do I do with this? Right. Like what is the application? Another thing that I also really got into was, and, and this this was just almost pure luck that the program had a class in community psychology. So community psychology is just it's really an incredible field. And that's what I got my doctorate in. And so I just want to use a quote here. So a definition of community psychology, a field that engages in research and action to promote individual, relational, and societal well-being while working to reduce suffering and oppression. So it's, it's a very um, critical field, right? And the idea is to empower and enhance community well-being and health through that psychological lens. Those two things were really fundamental in my perception of psychology and my engagement in psychology. Now we come back to the other question of, okay, this is all well and good from an intellectual academic standpoint, but unfortunately we're living in a world where money matters. And so how are you going to get a job? Other classes that I was fortunate to take were in organizational psychology. And so that's really working within organizations to enhance their effectiveness, efficiency, all of that stuff from a people perspective. Those three subfields of psychology all really came together, in in my mind, with study abroad, right? Because inherently there's different cultures, there's different people going to different communities. And then where the organizational came, uh, organizational psychology came in is actually being able to work with study abroad organizations to change the way all of that happens. Right, so it's a very action-oriented discipline or approach to psychology and study abroad. Now, I will, in full disclosure, I was very privileged and fortunate to travel quite a bit as a kid. In high school, I went on a variety of surf trips to Puerto Rico and Central America. I was able to experience these different ways of life and get out of my comfort zone, um, and so that certainly inspired my interest in culture and in travel. you know, there's this one story I like to tell that I, I, I went to go present this paper at a conference in South Carolina, the social psychology conference. And I had this paper and I was all presenting it. I was all fired up, you know, I was like doing something good in my field or whatever. And I just was not interested at all in the conference, right? Everyone was all fired up the keynote. Let's go see the keynote. Let's go see the keynote. It was great, I guess, but it just wasn't for me. I didn't see the application. And I actually freaked out and like got on my bike and went to the library and started like looking up graduate schools to do something different than that. And so I, ha- I was actually on this road trip and that's when I figured out, okay, I want to apply culture to the workplace. So that was the intersection there. This confluence of all these things that came together to make me realize that I really wanted to focus on study abroad. And why is because I feel like it's real people going real places has a very real impact in these communities abroad. And if we can change the organizations, whether it's educational institutions, for profit, um, whatever it is, if we can start moving those towards more socially, culturally, environmentally responsible practices, we can have a massive multiplying effect of how we interact with one another in this world. Because with that huge responsibility comes huge risk and opportunity, right? And so my number one goal here is first, we need to do no harm. We need to do no harm. If we're gonna be sending people to these real communities, interacting with these real people, staying with these real families, we have to make sure that they're not causing harm to anyone or anything. And so it's trying to reduce that simultaneously while increasing the possibilities of cultural sensitivity, uh, global citizenship, if you will, which we'll get into a little bit more, but these desirable, collaborative, critical perceptions and experiences.
0: So now that we have that overview, let's go ahead and, and definitely dig into the concept of global citizenship. As That was kind of what you landed on. And, you know, in your whole career trajectory, all of a sudden you were thinking, okay, we need to figure out how we can go around the world and do no harm and be a positive influence when we come back or we stay or whatever the case may be. In your dissertation, you refer to several definitions in your literature review, as, you know, literature reviews go. But, and then there's one that you select for the purpose of your research specifically. Tell us what that definition is and why you selected it.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. And maybe just a little bit of background on that too. Global citizenship is, it's a very interesting concept. It's both a very loaded term in some respects, and it's a very unloaded <laughs> term in other respects. And by that, I mean, kind of superficial, almost buzzwordy. And so I, I kind of want to speak to both of those a little bit, and then I will bring us into the, the definition that I used for the for this uh, research. And from an un, unloaded buzzword, superficial perspective, what I found when I was researching is how ubiquitous the term global citizenship is. It's used everywhere. That made me think about, okay, well, what are we even really talking about. You know, I'd want to learn more about, okay, if I'm going to participate in this program that's going to, you know, create global citizens, like, what does that mean? And I I found that it was often just used as almost empty rhetoric. There wasn't really a clear explanation as to what global citizenship actually meant. It was almost as if these study abroad organizations were selling this identity right, that someone could achieve by going abroad without really clarifying what that meant. And I guess it's harmless in some respects, but it's also not helpful in other respects. So that's in, in kind of the like, practical space and uh, looking at study abroad organization. And then looking into the literature, global citizenship, there's a lot of discourse around it. And what I found was that there's almost no consistency about what we're talking about when we, when we say global citizenship, much less how we measure it. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, kind of outcome measures associated with study abroad, right? People want to know what are students achieving or developing into as a result of going abroad. And there's all sorts of measures and outcomes there, most predominantly intercultural competence, obvious ones like second language abilities. But then there's all these these seemingly connected outcomes to global citizenship such as global mindedness, global engagement, and there are a few global citizenships, but they're defined in very very different ways. One global citizenship is all about pro-environmental behaviors, which is great, right? I'm I'm all for that, but is that really all encompassing? Is that really global citizenship? It was just kind of all over the place and there weren't that many measures, right? So in this kind of rigorous research you know, you need a, a valid, reliable measure to, under, to better understand a concept. Finally, there, there were also a lot of criticisms of the term global citizenship, and this kind of gets into the loaded nature of this of this construct in that it's anchored in the term citizen. And citizen comes with it a whole, that's its own discipline in and of itself. What does it mean to be a citizen? And essentially citizenship is based on national boundaries, right? It's, it's about being a part of a nation. And with that, you know, comes all the, the things that we're familiar with, like taxes, passport, perhaps military service, social benefits, you know, voting in a democratic society, those types of legal things that exist. Then there's also this this kind of imaginary of nations, right? It's like allegiance to the flag and patriotism and those types of almost psychological relationships with these quote unquote imagined communities as they're called. But let us not forget that these national borders are a human construct. They don't really exist, but they do to define what it means to be a citizen of this this place. So if you take that definition and you try to translate it To a global citizen, it almost doesn't compute for a couple of reasons. On the one, there's no global governing institutions, so you can't pay global taxes, for example. You can't get a global passport. There is no global military, at least that I'm aware of, at this stage. So, from a legal standpoint, there isn't any kind of validity in being a global uh, global citizen. Now, when you come to the psychological or, or the kind of like imaginary aspect, that is where you potentially could be a global citizen, right? It's, it's that like psychological relationship to the world as opposed to a nation. And so that feeling we're all together, right? We're all unified. You know, We all are equally deserving of respect and rights and self-determination and all of these various constructs, right? And so, so that's where a lot of people actually criticize the term is because of the anchoring in citizenship specifically. And one more thing I just want to say there is that a lot of people also critique it as being this, quote unquote, like elitist identity only afforded to those able to travel and experience other parts of the world. And that, I think, is largely a part of the discourse in study abroad more generally, right, is that, is is it like elite privileged academic tourism. And so, so yeah, so that, so there's all sorts of commentary in the literature about all of those things that I was just describing and and many, many more as well. What my goal for the research was because I was seeing this very disparate outcome measures associated with study abroad, but then also within global citizenship, more specifically, my argument is that we need to do two things. One, we need to agree upon an operational definition. Of global citizenship, let's agree what we mean by it, right? In very specific terms. And then, secondarily, let's develop a measure to assess that construct because that really didn't exist previously. And one of the benefits of literature and research is the cumulative understanding of a concept. It's not just one study and then we know everything there is to know about global citizenship, it's study over study over year over year. To achieve that, we need some sort of continuity of understanding. Continuity of measurement within reason, right? It's a constantly evolving process, but I just didn't see that in the literature, and so what what I landed on was a study by two gentlemen from North Carolina State University, um, doctors Marias and Ogden, in 2011 they put a paper out creating a global citizenship scale. The scale being the measurement tool used to assess global citizenship, and for that they very clearly defined. Global Citizenship, which I will just kind of briefly go through. It basically is three components. It's social responsibility, global competence, and global civic engagement. And within each one of those, there's you know kind of sub-bullets, if you will. But what I really appreciated about this, this definition is that it's, it's all-encompassing. I think that all of the other measures, outcome measures associated with study abroad, actually fit very nicely within this framework. Although I'm advocating, you know, for global citizenship, I also believe all the other things are desirable as well. So I'm not critiquing the research on intercultural competence or global mindedness or these things, right? I just don't think that they're encompassing enough. So that's what I really like about this particular definition is that they all kind of fit within this. So it's almost like an overarching definition that like really brings in all of those other, all of those other ones as well.
2: I like the term of it being kind of an umbrella term. The idea that I, when I was reading your dissertation too, that a lot of those things do fit under it, but at the same time, they don't all add up or they do add up eventually to global citizenship, but they don't individually encompass everything that students especially see on study abroad or just even those experiences, depending on what it is internationally that you're doing, can create uh, You know, a global citizen. I really found it interesting also when you were discussing earlier the concept of this being something that you could purchase and the value in it. And I've seen in the field and this is not just in study abroad but an internship domestically and abroad to this idea of gamifying these experiences or adding things you can earn that are going to help you find a career like badges of being a global yeah, yeah. citizenship yeah, yeah certifications these badges on linkedin all these other things and it i always found it interesting because i thought well, okay, this organization is doing that. We, You know, the organization I was with, we could do that too, but like w- how are they defining you have earned this? And I've seen universities do it as well where they're now setting up a curriculum that students can work towards as like a concentration, no matter what their major is, where they are going to become a global citizen or global whatever they call it. And I'm always wondering how and who is defining what this curriculum is and what are their actual uh, outcomes? learning outcomes. Thank you. I couldn't think of the term. Uh, uh, Learning outcomes that they are able to then go into life and their professional career with an understanding of and how will that impact it. And I haven't been exposed enough to that to know, but I think hearing that perspective that you've brought in is is very important. And I think you've already sort of answered it, but just to clarify and maybe sum it up one more time. So the point you're making is with global citizenship, connecting it with study abroad is because we want to see what those outcomes are. Could you just clarify that one more? Time overall for our audience.
1: Sure, absolutely, yeah. No, you're you're right on about that, Erin. And you know, a big part of it, even just to kind of take a couple steps back here, is really encouraging study abroad organizations, leaders, practitioners, to think about why are we doing this? Why why are we sending students abroad? Really, what are our goals? Yeah, it's second language, a bit, blah blah blah, all, right? Like all those desired outcomes. But what are we trying to achieve in the bigger picture? And to kind of get to your point here, one of the questions that I explore in my research is, are we developing a sense of competition or are we developing a sense of cooperation? And a lot of what I found is that, you know, a lot, and and I'm not saying this is wrong necessarily, I'm just saying we could probably be better in that, is it just for the individualistic development of skills to become more competitive in the global marketplace And the answer to that is yes, of course. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Are we, however, also building a sense of cooperation and collaboration and empathy and understanding? And that is what I see to be the key differentiator between those other outcome measures and global citizenship, is that global citizenship inherently has this collaborative, cooperative, understanding respect element to it that I think is missing in a lot of those other outcome measures and, and they are there. And so once again, I'm not trying to critique those necessarily. I just don't think that they're all, all encompassing and you know, to your point about getting the like global citizenship badge and you know, I think that's okay. But but you know, how is it being defined? You know, how what are the outcome measures? How are you developing curriculum to achieve that goal, however it's defined? And so that's where there perhaps should be some larger standard around what we're talking about with global citizenship, not just having it be that that empty rhetoric that I had said, you know, a little while ago. And so when I was talking with these students about this cooperate, because I explicitly talk to them about this notion of cooperation versus collaboration, right? I think I spoke with 30 students who had studied abroad. What I got out of it is that I think it is about competition, at least in my, my small, you know, study there. But what they were saying is that the collaboration is actually the competitive advantage. The ability to collaborate with others and understand others and be on a team with others from different backgrounds, different ways of life makes them more competitive in the marketplace. So I just found that to be very interesting. And so it really makes me think about like, you know, is it okay to be competitive or should we only be quiet? So for me, the answer was not necessarily clear. And I think that there's more opportunity for research in that space.
0: Yeah, I feel like we need to initiate some research to, like, replicate what you did with these students in Hawaii, like, all over the nation, (laughs) because it's making me wonder. I've had a couple of conversations, but it, it related very closely to this conversation I had with a family member. It kind of opened up this conversation around, like, okay, we're stuck in this thinking that we are these nations that are competitive and that that like we are, I mean, that's that there is a reality there. I, I think this is where we get into nationalism, right? The United States is great, and we want to be great. And I think that but I think I even think that young people are also rooted in this idea of like, well, this country needs to be needs to be great, we need to have the best resources, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But it, I don't think that that's how that that kind of works. And so this concept of citizenship, is just as you're explaining, it's almost like even the, like global citizen has definitely become a hot buzzword that is absolutely warrant of criticism when it's being used to commodify things, right, and to advertise. But I feel like the, the notion just as you're, you've found in your research, this great concept of what global citizenship can mean is so necessary and like what we need in that collaboration piece.
1: I think you make a a couple of great points there, Kelly. And it's making me think about what does this really mean in pragmatic terms? And so the focus that I'm taking about global citizenship is, you know, it's a desirable goal, certainly, right, based on being socially responsible, globally competent, and civic engaged at a global level. But what does that really mean pragmatically? And and it's not a you are or you are not a global citizen. It's everything and anything in between. When I'm doing this research and making these arguments, it's really for study abroad organizations, right? Those responsible for sending students abroad to reevaluate why they do it, how they do it, and what are the goals of it. Right. So that goes back to the organizational development psychology element of it, because if we're doing it and we're perpetuating stereotypes, if we're misrepresenting cultures, much less like problematically exoticizing them or something of that, you know, to that kind of extreme, it's revisiting the organizational practices to realign the vision and the ultimate purpose of why they exist as a company. So now if we're able to do that and someone goes through that new global citizenship program and gets the global citizenship badge, right, Aaron, as you were talking about, well, what does that mean in real terms? How do they interact differently on a day-to-day basis? Are they then relinquishing their national citizenship or notions of patriotism to become this like global something, right? And I think that that's where perhaps we lose a little bit of this. Is that like, okay, what does that really mean in actual term? And, you know, I, I think we maybe know the answer to some of those things, but it's like, pragmatically, how does one put that into action? And so I think that that's where maybe some of it, some of it is lost from a, okay, they go through the program they're, you know, they, they achieve this global citizenship curriculum, Aaron, as you're saying, they got their badge. Now, how does that differentiate their behavior and the activities afterwards? And I think we're going to speak a little bit to that. You know, I have some thoughts based on what I had heard in my research. It's an interesting dialogue and consideration as to what that really means.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I went, like, I went to NYU, which I bring up a lot in this podcast. I almost feel like they should be paying us for like ads, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not after what I say what I'm going to say, but they um, <laughs> they pitch it and they're like, you graduate from NYU, you're a global citizen. And it's like, well, okay. But how? But why? <laughs> what am I doing? What are myself and my friends doing that make us global citizens? It still needs to be really thought through and, and uh, considered.
1: Yeah, I think that maybe yeah. brings us to that question about what are some examples of people in, in at least in my research space developing this, this competency of global citizenship. Right? And, and if we can maybe just segue there, because I think we're kind Perfect. of in that space right now. I'm just going to maybe share kind of a random smattering of things that I heard that I believe indicate global citizenship, the competency. So I, I work with a lot of leaders and work on leadership development. And the rule, or not rule number one, lesson number one of being a leader is self awareness one needs to understand their experiences their values their strengths their areas for development what are their pet peeves what you know what keeps them up at night what are they striving towards what's their personal mission to go with your question and i think the same is true with global citizenship I think it's really about understanding one's cultural space, however you want to define that, whether it's values, what is deemed desirable or undesirable, what's good and bad about where they came or that that national national identity. What are they trying to achieve in the world? What are their aspirations? Where are they dedicating their time and energies towards? Right? And so I think a lot of the answers to those questions can indicate more global citizenshipy or less global citizenshipy. When when talking to these students, you know, I asked them like, what effect did study abroad have on your personal? And this is kind of part of your podcast too, right? Like personal, academic, and professional uh, world. And a lot of people just talked about how they reflected on their own personal identity. They reflected on their own cultural identity, their values, the assumptions they made because they all of a sudden found themselves being the outside. They weren't the ones that were in their comfort zone. Comfort zone was discussed all the time. Being on the outside, looking into that cultural mirror and learning more about yourself as an individual, I think is a very important, and I heard that all the time with these students, right? That was probably one of the main takeaways. A couple other random things is in that space, realizing that even though you're different than the way I would do that, than the way that person would do that, that it's not better or worse. It's just different. Right. And that gets into the whole notion of cultural relativity. It's like, who's to say what is right or wrong? Are there universal values? And so, so I found that to be very interesting, not right, wrong. It's just different. And then a lot of people also talked about, despite these differences that they experienced, they felt like we are all the same. So you speak a different language, you may wear different clothes, you may go to a different, you know, religious ceremony or, or situation. But at the end of the day, day to day, we're kind of, we all want the same thing, right? We're all kind of talking about the same thing with our friends. And so I I think that that was a really striking example of quote unquote global citizenship is like that we have all these differences, but at the end of the day, we all kind of want the same thing. So it was like messages of unity, right? That despite our differences or in celebration of our differences, we all kind of want the same thing in many respects and variation in that is good. But when it comes to those kind of core, core desires and core needs. And okay, kind of shifting a little bit. A lot of people saw themselves as Americans, or you know, people from the United States of America, and reflected upon their own culture and their own country. Many were very critical, but also some appreciated various elements of it. Right? So They talked a lot about the mass marketing, buying in bulk, the waste that we have, that we emphasize work over leisure, the quote-unquote ugly American stereotype one person talked about toilet paper, how they went to India and they have Turkish toilets. And if they use toilet paper the way we do, like the Amazon would be cleared in like five days. Right, so it's kind of these realizations of of the way we consume, uh, you know, what we prioritize, et cetera. But then on the other hand, they also appreciated the freedoms afforded in this country and their ability to speak openly, you know, the, the free speech, the right to assemble, those types of things, right? So the point here is that it's a reflection on the things that you almost took for granted. So it's seeing that in a different light two stories that really stood out to me. One, it was a, a young student that went to Spain, I believe, and uh, she was a business major. Just got inspired about all of these all of these different ways of life and came back and started her own sustainable clothing company. And it made her totally revisit how she, because she was a business major, right? And saw that it's not just about the bottom line, it's about the triple bottom line, right? It's like making money, but taking care of the people and taking care of the environment. And so it fundamentally shifted her understanding about business and what it means to be successful in business to the point that she started her own sustainable clothing line, which I thought was really neat. Perhaps one of the most striking uh, examples was a gentleman that studied abroad in China, and he was actually there as a, I don't want to say as a representative, but through the Air Force program, and he was being funded to go there to learn uh, Mandarin Chinese. And during his time abroad, he spent a lot of time in China. Uh, He traveled to Tibet. He went to Myanmar. It was Burma at the time. So he had all these experiences and it completely transformed his life. And he, when he returned, he decided to step out of the military. He paid back all of the money that he had been provided. And he went into a master's of social work program. And so it was just a complete reorientation and his time in, um, in Southeast Asia, he wanted to, he, he wanted to work with, with refugees. And so that was his experience that he had and how it transformed him. And so, you know, all of those things that, that I was kind of sharing, you know, a little bit haphazardly, I think if we take all of those types of things together, it in a way does define global citizenship. I think it characterizes global citizenship development.
2: There were a few great nuggets from that. And I know we've talked about a variety of things throughout this, all the way to the differences and similarities that you were talking about, how being able to know our differences, but then see everyone as part of the human race and see our similarities. It made me think of the IDI, which you talk about in your your dissertation as well, which is one of the more well-known kind of cultural competency tests, quick exams that's out there. I've been lucky enough to do it myself. I worked with it in one of my past jobs. So I know some of the six different kind of levels it's almost like color, the concept of colorblindness that a lot of people know about now after the summer we've had in the US and talking about our you know, race issues here as well. This idea that we want to just be able to say, oh, we're all human. We all have to deal and be great with each other. But at the same time, we, we need to be able to recognize those differences to then also recognize that we're still a human race, but we, we have to actually point those out to make improvements and stuff. So I think one of the things with the IDI that I found interesting is that you go there and these students are learning, yes, wow, I have so much more in common with these people that live thousands of miles away. I didn't realize that we would have those similarities. I just had these stereotypes that totally weren't associated with the Western world, let's say, or different things of that nature. But at the same time, in the IDI, you want to have the ability to or one of the higher levels of competency is to be able to actually still see those differences and not just group everyone together. If I remember it all correctly, it's been a few years since I've actually worked with it. But I think that that's interesting still because, like you were mentioning, the competitive edge is people saying we're able to collaborate. That is the competitive edge, and we have that empathy and being able to see both those similarities and differences. I think is how you gain that that empathy. So I think a lot of those things are merged together, and and I, I just wanted to point out a few more of those nuggets. And bring them back to the forefront because I think it lends itself to how everyone is thinking about, you know, how do we measure this? Is this, um, you know, the right, are we commodifying it essentially? And there is a way to make it, you know, both I think a commodity in some respects, as you've mentioned, and then also something that is a continual process. And I also made me think of before we move on, now I'm working in professional licensures essentially so that's why I work with university students who are looking to then continue their academics by getting a professional license and thinking of these badges or thinking of being labeled a global citizen after your four-year undergrad experience and maybe maybe it was only you know four months or maybe it was only eight weeks abroad or whatever it may be okay but are you getting continuing education as many of these professional licensors have where every few years to keep an active license or an active badge you are continually having to update your knowledge base and re kind of learn the system to make sure that you still in, uh, truly have the validity of that. And not that we would actually do that in this field, but it's true. Okay. If I learned it in 1975 versus, you know, got that global citizenship versus 2000 versus 2020, what are the differences there and how do we continue to maintain that and also not make it this kind of elitist thing where, well, you can only maintain it if you continue to go abroad and continue to have extended period interacting with, different cultures in different languages and things of that nature. So I think there's just a lot of critical thinking that this conversation brings up and we don't have all the answers. It's an interesting concept of commodifying this process. And I thought it was good to kind of summarize some of my thoughts on that too, before we get over it. After the examples you gave, we were thinking about, you know, then how do we promote these ideas or advocate for promoting the one competency within institutions and in organizations, even that you've worked with, how are you able to do this kind of on that one Concept, but then more broadly, the idea of the need across to have one similar definition. And what do you think it will yeah. take?
1: <laughs> you know, I, you're, you're raising an interesting point because, as much as I'm advocating for global citizenship as that standard bearer, it also makes me think that there's probably more work needed to build that out more substantially. It's not just the model that is the little diagram in the research thing. I think it needs to be substantiated, especially if it's going to be translated into curriculum. Now in my in my research I have some recommendations and but I think that if if the goal of all of these institutions is to create global citizenship and if it's defined in the way that it was proposed in this research then okay what does that what does that actually mean like putting the the wheels to the road right like what does that actually look like and so in terms of what does it take you know looking at it from an organizational perspective like an organizational change I actually don't think it would require that much change. I think it would be a relatively straightforward process of re-looking at the vision and the mission, looking at the curriculum, looking at the mindset, re- re-evaluating why we're doing this, looking at our processes. Re- you know, So I think with a, a reasonably concerted effort, that could be done pretty easily, right? So I don't think it's like this huge shift that these, these study route organizations would necessarily need to go through. I think it's a simple change. Personally, but I don't. I don't know what I do. I haven't gotten in there and really seen that yet. So, with that being said, I think some of the barriers are a lot of it is about education still at this point. I think a lot of it's about mindset shift. Are they willing to? Are they especially like leaders of these these organizations, right, that are in positions of power that can influence and they've maybe been in that a long time? Are they? Is there a willingness to look at the cracks? maybe in their thinking or their programming or and whatever that may look like some may have huge fissures some may just be knocking it out of the park and so i think it's a i think it's really an honest reflection of uh, the desire to do this and looking at the current state you know strengths and shortcomings and my understanding is that covid has really given people an opportunity to do this right it's i can imagine put this at a significant standstill and force people to get out of the hamster wheel, right? And really think about, okay, what are we doing? What is our programming? What what are we trying to do? So I think it's an honest look at the current state. That's one. I think there needs to be a clear, strong, and concise argument for this learning outcome. Right? I think it needs to be crystal clear. I think people need to say that's a no-brainer decision to shift our programming to achieve that. Yeah. And that's part of the education as well. And then I also think that the the reality is, is that organizations need to survive, right? They need to remain financially solvent. And so it's really identifying, well, what's in it for them? What's the financial incentive of shifting the programming to global citizenship in, in this case? And I'm not sure if that's completely clear at this point. So if I'm a student that's looking to go abroad, this company offers global citizenship. This one does not do I go to the global citizenship one? And if that happens frequently enough, then there's that business case to reorient one's processes and curriculum to achieve that goal. So I think a lot of it, it's like it's supply and demand in many respects. And so I think it's evaluating what, why, why, if I'm a business leader, I'm already, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Why would I do this? What is it? What's my incentive for it? Maybe it's because it's the right thing to do. Maybe it's because I believe in it. How does it affect, that, that bottom
0: line. Well, Jeff, I'm going to say, you know, I know that one of the purposes of your dissertation was also to offer that bedrock for being able to make the application of that global citizenship competency, you know, and adapt it into an organization or, or whatnot. Right. And it's been very, a very useful exercise for me in sort of realizing that I needed to need to update the learning outcomes that I have for the study abroad program I manage, which because I I was the one who created those learning outcomes when I was like a fresh newbie. So that's kind of crazy. They put me in charge of that in retrospect, but that's what (laughs) happened. But in addition, Aaron and I have been using some of, you know, like looking at it and looking through your dissertation and, and been using it as an exercise to think of questions that we want to ask students who we bring on. So I'm just going to put it out there as like a testament to the research that you've done. I think it's so valuable and helpful. So thank you for dedicating your PhD.
1: (laughs) That warms my heart to hear that there's application to this body of research. So thank you for sharing that, Kelly. It, It warms my heart. It wasn't all in vain. (laughs) No, not at all.
0: And I'm excited that you're here to be able to talk about it too. So hopefully more people will become curious. But so we're talking a lot about, and I know that we're about to launch into a different can of worms, but we've talked a lot about how this is really tied to curriculum. You know, part of what your research is pointing to is that it's important to have that structure so that students will actually gain in that competency. So when we think about, external to academia or, or just structured programming in general. I've had some really, I think, eye-opening experiences and just seeing how much travel when done in kind of a, a conscientious way can really help people grow and, and develop this competency outside of that structure but not all of them do obviously and in fact i would say it's a smaller subset much smaller do you have any ideas on maybe like I, I don't know it's almost it seems like it has to be like a really systematic kind of change to get people to think about travel and tourism differently and to actually embark on experiences that are going to build this competency and, and do that thing you talked about which is like the number one priority: not do harm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a really great question, and 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 I know your your question is about outside of the study abroad or educational program, it, right? Like, how can just regular travel, non-academic travel, develop this competency? And you know, one thing I do just want to say about study abroad, because I think it relates to what you were just saying, is there was this paradigm shift from immersion to intervention and the immersion paradigm is just send them abroad and they're going to become global citizens or they're going to develop second language or they're going to all of a sudden miraculously become better humans or what have you because they've experienced difference and i think that is True to a certain degree, but it also has the potential to do the opposite. You know, to use terms of the IDI, right? Does it create ethno relativity or does it enhance nationalism and ethnocentricity, right? And so without structure and without intervention, it's the wild, it could go in any sort of direction, right? It depends on infinite variables the human, their intentions, where they go, the experience they have, how they're treated, all of those things kind of play into it. And that's really where part of my argument in this dissertation is building on that paradigm shift in that we need to intervene in the experience abroad to make sure that learning outcomes are achieved. Because yes, you can make certain gains just by going, but it's only going to get you so far. And so you need to do you know, structured interventions to make sure that you're achieving your desired outcomes. Now, in terms of non-educational activities, we're basically looking at that from an immersive standpoint. And I think we need to get back to why, like thinking about why do people travel? And oftentimes they travel to get away, to turn their brains off, to vacation, to explore, to see new and different places. And that's all fine and good, I suppose. But to what Cost? What truly is the impact that they are having on these host people, communities, economy, environment? You know, I was reading an article, I think it was this morning or yesterday. uh, They just put it in Al Jazeera, and it was about like mass tourism and now how COVID is giving us the opportunity to kind of reevaluate all of that. They use this startling statistic that tourism accounts for 8% of greenhouse gas emissions, 8%, just the tourism industry. Similarly to study abroad, how there's differences between, for example, on one side of the spectrum, like a service learning trip where they go and they're inherently volunteering in the local community to help in some capacity versus the like mass study abroad where, you know, people get off the tour boat, they get off a cruise ship and they're in this new space. So it's that mass, it's the mass tourism versus that individualized tourism. To develop global citizenship through tourism, I think it's a reevaluation of the tourism industry, similarly to the study abroad industry. Now, that I think is a much harder sell and change because it is economically driven. Whereas we would hope in the study abroad space, it's an educational driver, educationally We'd driven. Hope. That's it, you would hope, right? And there's actually commentary in some of the things that I was reading, I think it was Engel and Engel. They talked about we're seeing our shift as study abroad educators, moving from educators to service providers, right? In this like for-profit corporatization of study abroad. And so I think that that is what's you know, maybe that's the differentiation between study abroad, hopefully as education and then tourism, which is economically driven.
0: Yeah, I almost wonder if it's gonna take students who study abroad and like learn about this kind of thing, then going and working in, tourism or something like that and like I said it might be like a really systemic type of change that's needed for something like that and I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure the answer either
1: <laughs> it's a tough one it really is
2: all a lot of thought-provoking information I'm sure many people have discussions if multiple people listen to this that know each other because I know I would this, this is <laughs> me listening and if anyone
1: has the answers if anyone has the answers please let us know <laughs>
2: Seriously? I know a lot of organizations are thinking about this, but it's difficult, like you mentioned, to be able to, at least in study abroad, to enact or to act on those thoughts and conversations. And then that was even prior to COVID. So it, COVID probably did give a lot of time to reevaluate, as you mentioned, and to think about things, but it also really impacted tourism and the industry the of study abroad. Yeah, the economy. So it yeah, makes yeah. things a little less feasible in that regard. You have time to think about it and make plans, but will there actually be the, the economic function to do those things or the support from more students coming back, hopefully, or more people going back to traveling? Because that's you know a recovery process and how long will that take? So I think seeing that process play out, we'll we'll see maybe some answers in the future, but I also think there's a change in, at least I hope, People are changing their opinion about how reliant we are on the service industry and how can we make things more localized to then not have this mass issue with our economy in terms of tourism and all of that, because we were so reliant on it in the past. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious to see how this and those things can kind of be, be impacted by the whole, the whole change that COVID has brought to our, our country, the world, travel, economy, every aspect of life, essentially
1: completely agree and and I think you you write such a good point there and that it's it's like you, you know we have had that time to reflect but people are struggling businesses are struggling and so when we have that opportunity to reinvigorate our business or our economy whatever it is is it just going to be rubber band right back into almost whatever it takes to feed people etc and so It's like, you know, reevaluating and being critical about these things is almost a luxury when everything's doing okay now it's almost like whatever we'll take whatever we can get. And so does that lower our standards of responsibility, because of the economic struggles and realities.
0: Well, Jeff, this has been an incredible conversation. Erin uh, and I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and talking to us about your your work and sharing all these insights. Thank and you Your perspective so much. on the
2: world. <laughs>
0: I wrote down so many
2: little tidbits that we're going to use. So yes, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. And hopefully it starts a discussion for a lot of other people as well.
1: Oh, well, thank you both. It's been such a pleasure and honor to be here. You know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and inviting. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, I hope everyone out there in podcast land, stay safe, stay healthy, be well, be good to people. And, uh, thanks so much for listening.
2: Thanks for listening to today's
0: episode. Please give us a like or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. You can also join the conversation on our website listed on our anchor page or in the show notes. We hope that the stories you heard today have inspired you and helped you to think about what
2: intercultural experiences you'll seek next.
0: We are Generation Travel Radio. Keep thinking globally.